the Making Sense of Life podcast number 37. According to J.K. Rowling, life is difficult and complicated and beyond anyone's total control. The humility to know that will enable you to survive its vicissitudes. The Making Sense of Life podcast will not only empower you to navigate through a fast-changing world, but also to grow in body, mind and spirit. Inward change precedes outer transformation. As the ancient Greek author Plutarch once said, what we achieve inwardly will change outer reality. This podcast is sponsored by Logos Medical Legal. Sunil also works privately with senior leaders. Go to drsunil.com forward slash corporate to find out more. Hello and welcome again to the Making Sense of Life podcast with me, Sunil Rahija, as we discuss what it means to live in a world that is rapidly changing and challenges us in so many ways. And one of those ways to think about is with all the opportunities and options that technology gives me. How do I stay true to who I am? How do I manage my relationships? How do I live with integrity, with the easy availability of sexuality and pornography? How do I manage my time and how do I live with wisdom with so much information around me? These are some of the questions we're going to attempt to cover in this podcast. So today's podcast is part two of a discussion with Pete Nicholas uh, on the book. He's co-authored with Ed Brooks uh, on the subject of technology in our lives called Virtually Human. Um, there's, there's a link to, to, to that podcast on, on the blog post and uh, you, you can get access to that there. Also, Pete tells me that you can also go to, vir- to the website virtuallyhuman.co.uk uh, to get more details about the things that we'll be talking about. So the book itself is about how technology through the internet, social media and our smartphones is moulding and changing us. How can we navigate through all the benefits and challenges um, and keep sane in many ways as well? Hmm. So Pete, it's great to have you back again. Um, again, if you haven't listened to the early podcast, I really encourage you to do so, to get, as it were, an understanding and a framework of, of how we engage with the digital world. And in that podcast, we discussed about how technology is much more than just a tool by which we engage with the world. It also changes us in both subtle and profound ways. And those who promote technology are keen to promote the story of never-ending human flourishing and progress. And we looked at how that is just way too simplistic. We talked about how we need to both affirm the good that technology provides us, while at the same time being realistic about its limitations, because it can't change basic human nature. So we may have smartphones with amazing potential, but we are still the same greedy, self-centred and self-absorbed humans that we've always been. And for that, we've looked at what the biblical narrative has to say about how fulfilling the hope technology seeks to give us really comes from challenging and redeeming the failures and problems that technology causes. So it's got great potential, but it's also got great challenges as well. But perhaps most important of all, it's discussing about what does it really mean to be human. And that's the surprising thing about this discussion of technology. We really go back to the issue about what does it mean to be human. But Pete, look, do you want to summarise anything further you want to say from the first part of our discussion uh, that we had earlier? Oh, it's great to be back with you, Sunil. Um, I think, yeah, the couple of things that you picked up on there, that, you, that we use that quote from Martin Heidegger in the um, first um, podcast, that the essence of technology is nothing technological. It's actually it's much bigger. It's about the story that it tells and the way that it frames life. 
Um, and secondly, that actually a genuine kind of thoughtful engagement with technology will involve both a yes and a no to that particular technology or to technology in general. Yes, in the sense that there's going to be good in technology because it's part of God's good created order and we are made in the image of God. And a no, because we are fallen and distorted and sinful as the Bible, as the scriptures um, say, and therefore there are going to be distortions and failings and idolatries embedded in technology that need to be pushed back against. And therefore we need a thoughtful engagement that really gets to the root of um, of technology rather than just a superficial engagement that either wants to hark back to yesteryear or to have uncritical early adoption and fear of missing out. Okay. And you, you, in the book you give an example, I think, of w- with your wife uh, taking, um, taking photographs. Can you explain yeah. how that illustrates what the things you just talked about there? So um, one of the things is that, you know, smartphones now come with, you know, very, very good quality um, cameras on them. And so, of course, you know, people recording and taking photos become... Uh, has become pretty ubiquitous and my wife uh, one of the things she loves to do she's an artist in her spare time one thing she loves to do is to take photos and she's a fantastic photographer and so we have this discussion that we have in our in our marriage and we've had um, which is when we're enjoying a wonderful moment for example a sunset or something like that for me taking the photo or trying to get the perfect photo of that sunset can actually to some extent spoil the moment not in the sense of ultimately but just can mar it a little because bit because you're focusing so much on that because rather than enjoying it rather than enjoying the moment we can be focusing on capturing the moment but for rebecca actually capturing the moment can it if you like kind of be the fulfillment the icing on the cherry on the top of the icing of the moment because not only have we enjoyed the moment we've also now got a representation of the moment and there's a joy for her as well as an artist in actually capturing that moment in an artistic medium through photography so of course we you know now which is right and which is wrong well there's there's aspects to both right there's a yes and a no there and so what we in our marriage you know kind of have worked on is actually there are times when Rebecca in a self-giving way will say well will know that she wants to take a photo and as a way of you know giving herself um, to me in that situation will actually restrain herself and not take the photo and just let the moment be and there'll be times when I'll actually say to her, you know what, why don't we get a photo of this, even though that would not be my initial inclination. And so appreciation of the yes and the no there actually leads to a good discussion and to a positive outcome yes, of it. That's great. That's, that's a helpful illustration there. And we, we, on this podcast, we're going to try and be much more practical and think about how technology impacts us and how we should think about it. And let's start with, with the question of identity, or as you say in the book humorously, I tweet, therefore I am. <laughs> so... One of the issues about social media, be that Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, is that we can present a certain image of ourselves to the outside world. Mm. How genuine is that image? Well, that's, that's anybody's guess, really. But as you say, Pete, digital technologies enable us to reimagine and recreate who we are. Can you expand on that? What do you mean by that? So when we, when we come online, again, we talked a little bit in the previous podcast about the power of the flashing cursor. It seems to present you with a world of infinite possibilities of anything you can be or want to be. And so you get the opportunity to redefine yourself. And a little bit in the same way that when some people, for example, leave school and go to university or leave school and go to work, there's a sense in which there are things from their school, you know, kind of history which they want to take with them. Maybe, mm. you know, the achievements and maybe their popularity and, you know, things like that. And there are things from that which they want to lose, maybe an embarrassing incident and yes. things like that. And so when they step into the new arena, it, opportun- it gives them an opportunity to accentuate the good and to kind yeah. of mitigate the bad. And social media is very much like that. You know, as I step onto Facebook, the question seems to be put before me in terms of what type of online identity am I going to create? And of course, even the language of creation is very powerful. 
Um, and so it seems to present these great possibilities that I can, um, I can define my own story, I can you know, make my own narrative, and I can create the, a new me. Um, even just think, you know, for example, one that featured a lot in the news about a year, 18 months ago, was when Facebook didn't, uh, decided not just to give two binary gender identities, a male or female, but to give an enormous number. I yeah, think, I think it was 71, I think, something it? like that, yes, yes, and everything in between. Well, yes. just the actual the, the opportunity to choose so widely, for some was hugely empowering and for others was hugely concerning. Um, and, you know, I'm not at this moment in time going to make a particular comment on that. I think it's just to, to, to see the power of that. Because you could never have done that before. I mean. Well, exactly. And so it's a, and then there's a question of, is Facebook reacting to a social trend or is actually that the vanguard of the social trend is, it is creating, shaping it? Is actually creating it, yeah. Exactly. And what are the implications of that, et cetera. So yes. that's, the, that's the power of the online identity. And then actually, of course, one of the things that people are now discovering is that you can't keep your online identity and your real identity separate that there's this issue of authenticity. Eventually, eventually the little Exactly, people, and people start to realize if you're fake or you're not being authentic to who you are. And, you know, if, for example, you, you, know, you present a particular photo of yourself on your, uh, on your profile and then someone meets you. And in fact, I had it a couple of years ago, and I think I say in the book, that when I went to meet a student, uh, I was speaking at an event and the student had shared his, his online profile with me. And um, we were in the same foyer together for about 15 minutes. And he hadn't looked me up beforehand, so I said I would spot him. And I walked past him about five times because his actual, <laughs> him in reality, he was very, very different, very to, different yes. to the picture that he put on himself. And I didn't actually, wasn't bold enough and I didn't know it wasn't the right context to have the conversation with him. But there was an authenticity issue there. Yes. He hadn't represented himself truly. And you get these, you know, hashtag no filter yes. is, a, is a big thing. And, it's a, and what is that? Well, that's about a push for authenticity. Show things as they really are. Don't put such a filter on it that you can't yes. recognize the sunset from the reality or the yes. person from the reality. But also we're very much affected, um, you know, by emotional cues and visual cues. I, I, as you're talking, I, I'm reminded about somebody I, I, I know from a church we attended. And she put, she, she was on a, on, on a, on a, put her picture on a, on a dating site. And she got lots of people, a very pretty girl, got lots of you know, requests for, for contact. She then took a photograph off, but kept the same data on there, mm-hmm. and she got no, she got no interest whatsoever. Right. Which is interesting, just to, again how the technology, you know, is, is shaping us. Really. And interest, of course, Facebook. You know, as people who've watched the film or maybe read a bit of history know, Facebook was initially set up, you know, with a very, very strong lean towards the visual. It was a kind of a rating system on the university campus, yeah. right, of how attractive people were. Yeah. Well, that's, n- that's always endured to this day. So just even the name Facebook, right, gives it yes. away. It's very visually oriented. Um, and that itself has a powerful impact because, of course, you know, the first thing that presents someone, you know, on someone on Facebook is their, is their visual profile. The, the, the photo comes before the details yeah. about them and the things we notice about them. And, you know, and yes. that's intentional as well. So there's, yes. a, there's, so there's that very primary driver is, is, is what you see is, is the most Right, and again, a proper biblical engagement with that or a thoughtful engagement would be to ask, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? What does it really mm. mean to be human? Is the visual the primary thing? Or is there yeah. something more profound or deeper about that? And it's interesting you talk about mm. that um, research that shows that the more time people spend on Facebook, the more miserable they become. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and a lot of that, again, is not to, I mean, in the book, we're not trying to slam Facebook or, um, but we are just wanting to raise some questions about, again, the power of Facebook or the power of social media. I mean, these are, you know, ultimately, you know, behind the scenes, there is a, there are billions of dollars being invested to compete for our attention. I mean, it's called the attention yes. or the distraction economy. 
And the more that Facebook or YouTube or Twitter can hold our attention, the more money they can make. Yeah. So we just think we're casually going onto Facebook, but there's a lot of thinking that's gone on, is going on behind the scenes oh, to, to grab our attention and to make us an enormous more and more hooked onto it. A really powerful example of that is um, Snapchat streaks. So Snapchat have um, understood that from psychologists and have employed psychologists to understand this, that um, uh, a streak, uh, in other words, that let's say so now you and I were on a Snapchat feed, that you and I having communicated on Snapchat every day for a streak of say 15 is enormously powerful because once you're up to 15, you don't want to lose the streak. And so you then want 16, 17, 18, okay. and so it goes on. And as a result of that, they have managed to massively increase the usage on Snapchat such right. that when teenagers go on holiday now, the normative thing is for them to give their Snapchat passwords and ID out to five different people to maintain the streaks. So just to give them the buzz that they've managed to keep. So they don't want to lose the streak. So they may be on a streak of 30 days and then they're about to go on holiday and they would therefore not be able to keep the streak going right. because they wouldn't have, they wouldn't be able to, you know, in terms of expense, yeah. they wouldn't have the roaming allowance to keep the streak. So what they do is they give it to their friend and they give it to about five friends just to ensure that they keep the streak going. But the streak's not real. No. Now, Snapchat have massively increased the usage of that. And it's a really clever psychological tool. And they employ psychologists yeah. in order to understand that. Now, you have to ask, is that a good thing or is that yes. a bad thing? But it's clearly a thing. And teenagers, therefore, are being manipulated and their attention is being manipulated and preyed on by Snapchat, multi-billion dollar mm. organization. There's lots of money in it. There's lots of Hugely. money. Hugely. Through advertising. And so, you know, you would be naive to say, well, it's just a thing we don't need to, we don't need to worry about that. You would want to, and of course, in the moment you tell a teenager, it's interesting that they're being played by Snapchat, they get furious about it. Because, of course, one thing that everybody hates is the idea that you'll be manipulated. Mm. But, of course, it's not... You know, it's not me told. And I guarantee you, and here's my, here's my prophecy, wait till um, Facebook start doing streaks. They'll be doing it because, of yeah. course, the way that all these things work is that one, once one technology does it, the others follow yeah. suit. And, and just, just for our listeners who are wondering what we mean by streaks, what you're saying is that you, is, it's, it's basically a, like a colour code that, that, you're, that you've been going on a successive number of times. And so you want to keep that, that number to keep going up and up and up. Yes, every day, for example, you could see like um, a Snapchat streak would be every day Sunil and I have communicated on Snapchat for the last 40 days and we have a streak and therefore, but the moment that the one day we don't communicate, the streak ends. And so my best streak is 40. And that's and a we game will then, play, yeah. Yeah, and so we will then have competition where Sunil will say to his friends, what's your longest streak? And they say, oh, I'm up to 80. And then you think, oh, I have got to get up to 80. And of course, it's a way of increasing usage yes. and increasing the attention and the devotion that we give to our technology, to, to our think, devices. Yeah. But to what end? Is it actually itself promoting good communication? All the evidence is it's just promoting meaningless communication. Okay. So. so as we try and uh, grapple with, with these changes going on around us, you talk about how someone from way back in 1639, René mm. Descartes, has had a profound impact on the way that we, um, we, we view identity. Please, Nick, how can someone from 400 years ago explain, mould uh, mold us today when, when, when we're thinking about Facebook? Well, this is or where... Sna or Snapchat. Or yeah, so René Descartes was one of the most, arguably one of the most important philosophers in the period that history is now called the Enlightenment. And in his famous... Um, book, you know, famous amongst philosophers and probably not too interesting amongst other people who would only probably know the, the tagline, I think, therefore I am, yes, which has been, of course, spoofed in lots of different ways. Um, but he, he wrote um, his meditations and the whole process of him writing the meditations was he went into a room, just him, and he sat in front of a fire, basically just with a book and a pen, and he started to write his philosophy. And what was so interesting about that was it was a kind of a doing away with all 
things and just stripping it down. And he said, when you strip everything back, the only thing you're left with is him, I, mm. and the thoughts, I think, mm. therefore I am. Now, what was so controversial about that at the time was it's, it's taking away lots of things that were, that were taken to be formative, such as scripture, mm. such as community, such as the authority of the state. And so he was saying that ultimately what shapes us is just me and it was radical kind of individualism. Now that has lived on and been taken, yes. pushed forward and developed to this day. And so now that's the power and appeal of technology is just the eye, the flashing cursor. Yes. And I go into my room and I sit like I did, like Rene Descartes yes. did, not in front of a fire, but in front of a uh, firelit screen type thing. Yes. And I get to shape my identity. Yes. And so that's got positive and negative elements to it. So the positive I think you talked about is, is the example of the Pakistani lady, Mala Yousafi. Do you want to tell us about that? And yeah. It's a positive case, really. So. Yeah. So there's, I mean, exactly. As we're saying, all these things, it's not a, a straight good or a bad, um, because there were lots of things about the pre-modern identity which were bad you know you were it was fixed and we I think one of the things we do in the book is we pick up on how names you know kind of show this so for example if your name was Smith that was attached shows your identity was attached to a job you're a blacksmith and that meant you were a certain social level it's very defined or if you were Masterton that shows that you were a different level because your father forefathers was a master of a town and so in one level it means your identity is quite stable but another level it means your identity is very constrained mm. And so one of the late modern pushes has been for a much more liberating identity, which means your identity is much less stable, which is not a good thing, but equally is much more liberating. So a great example of that, where positively, is Malala Yousafzai, who ended up getting the Nobel Peace Prize. Mm. She was a Pakistani girl from the Swat Valley in a heavily sexist society. Um, yeah, where women had, had no rights. Exactly, yeah. and what she had no right for education, she had no right even to be speaking in public. Um, in a Taliban-controlled environment, but through a kind of covert association with the BBC, she was able to write these posts on the BBC. She ended up, you know, uh, she ended up as a result of that um, being uh, being shot, uh, and then she ended up coming to global prominence. And now she's become a huge voice for empowering women yeah. in parts of the world. And so you look at that and you think that was a wonderful thing of technology that she has been able to have this global voice as a girl yes. from a. Um, you know, from a, a heavily prejudiced background, which would never have happened. So that's a wonderful story of freedom and liberation and realizing a new identity that was way beyond her with te without technology. Um, so you've got to say that's a good thing about technology. But on the negative side, yeah. How, well, about, the, how about the negative? Well, on the negative side is you've, you find people today caught between the twin dilemmas of the narratives they hear in the culture, which is on one level, the culture says be true to yourself, yes. which implies there is a coherent you that you have to be authentic to. And on the other side, you hear culture saying, um, realize yourself or shape yourself. In other words, there is no ultimate you and you get to be whatever you want to be. And what that means is that with the liberty of identity, there also comes actually a real insecurity. And so all of the indicators of millennials, the generation, you know, kind of who are growing up in their late teens and early 20s now is that they are very, very insecure generation who don't know who they are. Yes, because they're on the one hand told you, can, you should define yourself, on the other hand they're told uh, just be who you are. So, exactly, yeah. and of course those two are contradictory, and so you ask someone, who are you? And this is the question that they're trying to figure out. So you see, they've got less stability, but they've got more freedom, yes. and so there are trade-offs with that. Yeah, so there are so big issues about identity there. Um, and also, if you think about it in terms of, of, of the way that we live and what we're doing, so again, you, you comically write about when Facebook tells my friends that I'm at home with my children, my children will tell you that I'm actually on Facebook with my friends, mm. like that. 
Yeah, so there's a there's a tension point there, isn't it? You know that your status will be. You know, I'm at my status update. Great to be at home with my children, really? and your children are thinking, "Daddy's not here," or "Mummy's not here." Yeah. They're on Facebook. Yeah, yes. And of course, they're there physically, but their attention is not there. And this is, I mean, there's even now apparently a um, uh, it's happening with teenagers where the language now um, using for um, dating is no longer that they're dating. The language now used is they're talking. Right. Because if you look at a bunch of teenagers in a room too often now, and I had this just the other day, I was waiting um, for something at an event that I was at, and I was sat there with four teenagers sat in a room who all knew each other, and they all spent the 20 minutes whilst they're there with their devices out and just fiddling on their phones. None of them talked to one another wow. at yeah. all. Um, it's, quite, it's quite common, yeah. Yeah, very, very common. I think it's a, it's, a, it's a common picture. There's been lots of memes on this, and you know, Sherry Turkle, I think, has talked about this on TED.com, um, mm. talks and things like that. So now, if you start to date someone, show a romantic interest in them, it's no longer called dating, it's called talking. Right. Because the key thing that defines you now is that you're off your devices and you're actually now talking, because that's quite an emotionally intense thing to do now, apparently. But so whereas it, you'd be totally normative, you know, 20 years ago you would sit waiting and you wouldn't have your devices, so what would you do? Well, you'd either be in silence or you'd probably talk to the person next to you, and even a total stranger. Yes, that's right. Now the idea is that being off your devices and talking, actually talking, is quite a romantically or emotionally intensive thing to do, such that when you say, oh, they're talking, that actually implies more than just, you know, a bog-standard relationship. Wow, that's it. So, so there we go. I mean, so you see how the terms are changing. They're talking yes. now, and it has a romantic connotation, because actually it's normal that we don't talk. Okay. So you talk about, you've mentioned about Descartes and how that's how he's influenced his agency of identity. You've also talked about John Calvin from Geneva, 500 years before Tim Berners-Lee invented the internet in 1989. He gives us a framework for understanding our identity. Tell us about that. Yeah. yeah, so one of the key things that John Calvin brings to the picture in the, you know, again, time that, the, that history is called the Reformation is that he starts to show that what the real essence of human beings is. And um, one of the key things about that is he says the essence of human beings is that we're made to worship. So we are made in the image of our creator and we are made to orientate ourselves and to find our ultimate value in a relationship with that creator God. And therefore, the essence of all human beings, religious or not, so um, John Calvin's great insight, and so one of his great insights, is to say that all human beings are made to worship. And the, uh, if we do not worship the creator, the, um, the counter alternative is not that we worship nothing, rather the opposite of worshiping the creator is to worship anything else. And so therefore the fundamental orientation of every human being is to worship. And worship properly defined, which means to find your identity, your ultimate fulfillment in someone or something or some ideal or idea. And when you put it like that, then all of us are continuing to worship, whether we call ourselves atheists or secular right. or anything. So it's one of the, so an atheist might say, I don't worship anything, and you'll, and you'll say, okay, but you've got something, you might not think in a religious way, but actually there is something you find your ultimate value, your ultimate identity in. And we use that, and it, our language betrays it. For example, someone say, "Oh, they're, um, you know, they they worship their career, or um, you know, their career has a hold on them, or they're addicted, um, you know, to it. They're workaholic, or something like that." And actually, all of that language there is about finding your ultimate identity in that. It defines me. Mm. It is me. Um, and so we either find our ultimate identity in God, and He's the only one who gives us a secure and liberating identity. Or we will try to find it in other things, and this is what Calvin would call idols, and the Bible calls idols, which are created things that we turn into ultimate things. And when we try to worship anything apart from God, it always leads to us unraveling as human beings and offending God. Yes. So we're still on this issue of identity, and you talk about the need and the importance of solitude in times of 
discover, well, understand one's identity, maybe not discover is the, the wrong word, but um, yeah, because solitude is, 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 is not something that we are comfortable with uh, in, in our day and age. No, and I think one of the things is to reflect on, you know, what you worship. Um, and this is for Christians as well as for atheists and everybody who would put them on a spectrum in between. So we, um, because everybody worships something, John Calvin says the, uh, the heart is an idol-making factory, and therefore that ties up to this issue of identity because, you know, as we've been saying, to worship something is to find your ultimate source of identity in that thing. But it's not necessarily easy to reflect on what you are worshipping. You often just kind of go about life. And one of the ways you can reflect is to have some time in solitude and then to <clears throat> see where your desires and where your thought life goes. So I often talk to people about what is their screensaver, um, not their real screensaver, what is their mental screensaver? So mm. in those moments of solitude or moments of idleness, where do your thoughts go? What are your hopes and dreams and what occupies your mental screensaver? Because the things you play through in your mind's eye are ultimately the things which are driving you. So for example, perhaps you're anxious about a work meeting um, and you're overly concerned with what we're doing. Well, maybe that shows you that your idol is your career or maybe there's a relationship that's really bothering you or a relationship you don't have that's really bothering you that shows you that your idol is a particular form of relationship or a friendship or, or, or people's or, perception of yourself. And so by paying attention to your screensaver, it will reveal what it is that yeah. you worship. Or take the example we had earlier on, that you're thinking about getting that winning streak of about another 30. Right, in which case it could be, you know, it could be popularity or it could or be the most successful or, yeah. streak or something yeah, like that. Yeah. So that you're re seeing your mental screensavers reveals what you worship. Yes, okay. So that's the whole area of, of identity and understanding who, who I am and how technology is fundamentally challenging our, our, our identity of ourselves. Um, the other big area is the area of relationships, and obviously social media is huge mm. on that. <coughs> and, and you've touched about this a little bit. You mentioned earlier on this lady, Sherry Turk, and this TED Talk, which, uh, and the book she's called Alone Together. And she says, uh, just quoting from the book, she says, I'll just get it it up here it says um, yeah. we have moved from conversation to connection from talking to texting from solitude to isolation from interdependent to interconnected um, and you gave that example as well you know about those um, those teenagers and those four teenagers just just texting they're just texting on their phones but not actually talking to each other elaborate in terms of how how the technology and relationships you know? So well, one of the things is this competition for our attention. And so the devices that we have, and are particularly our phones and our smart um, phones and devices, are very, very powerful things. And the technology, the apps on them are very, very powerful. We talked earlier about um, the way that they shape us. And there's almost, and, there, and a lot of these um, organizations and these uh, businesses are using psychologists to try to retain our attention. And they're very, very good at doing it. Um, for example, just notice the way that um, all of the social media, you know, kind of apps from YouTube to Facebook have all started now having continuous play on their videos. So it's right. no longer that as it used to be that you would scroll down on a Facebook feed and you would come to a video, you would have to click on the feed in order for the video to play. Yeah. Well, that no longer happens, it just right? Plays Those videos play automatically. And not only that, after the video is played automatically, an another one will come up automatically as well. And you have to go into your settings, yeah. which are very difficult for most people to find, and yeah. turn the autoplay off if you don't want it to happen. So, in a sense, you get hooked, so you have to keep on watching. Exactly. Now, why is that? Well, that's a, it's a conscious choice. Now, I don't know who did it first. Maybe, let's say, YouTube did it first, and then Facebook realized, well, if YouTube are doing it, then they're going to get more of our attention. So, they're going to eat into our market share since 
the market share is determined by attention. And so the, these, these devices are highly, highly addictive. Um, I often liken it to people now as saying that there was a period in the 80s and 90s when people started to realize that cigarettes were highly addictive, but there was no regulation. And so imagine if you had gone into someone's home in the 80s or 90s and someone had said to you, would you mind not smoking in our house? Would you mind just leaving your cigarettes by the door and not smoking? Now, it, it's totally normative now. It would almost be shocking to smoke in someone's house yes, unless yes. someone gave you explicit permission, then yes, it would become right. strange. But then if someone had said that to you, you would have thought, well, that's very odd. You probably would have respected them asking you, but you would have gone back and talked to all your friends and said, I can't believe the Nicholases. I mean, they don't, they don't allow smoke in the house. Yes. I mean, how backwards is that? Yes, and right. people would have been shocked by it because it was just so countercultural. Then what happened was all this information started to come out about how addictive cigarettes were and the impact on people. And once all the research had been done 10, 15 years later, suddenly there was huge regulation in public space. And now it's absolutely normative that there would not, you would not smoke in someone's house. Yes. Well, we're at the same point, I think, with technology, where we're starting to realize the level of addiction and the level of and the, how strong um, these devices are. And that is, and the, the impact it's having is it's starting to fragment our relationships. We're not spending time talking because we're addicted to our devices. Yes. But there's no regulation at the moment. Yes. And so what's really interesting is the Silicon Valley executives who send their children to schools, the couple of schools they send them to, all have no device policies. That's interesting. Now you have to ask yourself, what do they know that we don't know? Well, they know the amount of investment and the power of the apps and the devices yes. they're creating. And especially on children and young people who right. can be so impressionable. And so what it's causing is this, this, um, you know, this hashtag alone together, which means yes. we can be sitting next to one, each other, we can be proximate, but we're not, you know, we can be near each other, but we're not really together because we're not connecting. We're not, yeah, we're, we're, maybe we're communicating with somebody on the other side of the world. Yeah, and, that's and so at the moment we're riding, I think we're riding the eye of the storm where we're not yet um, taking proactive steps, how many families or teenagers are really taking proactive steps to mitigate the addictive qualities of the devices and the apps they're using and social media and, and so, so therefore you're getting a whole generation who are growing up a bit like a generation growing up being addicted to cigarettes and in 20 years time they would have had to you know kind of go cold turkey and learn how to become unaddicted to them. Well that's going to happen with social media yeah. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. In fact that is happening right now and so you're yeah. getting little pockets of communities who are pushing back on that. Yes and and, and it's, it's important that we're, we realise that and we're aware of that. Otherwise, again, it, it, it begins to take us, takes over. We get sucked into, into living that particular way. And, and one of the great things with the, with the church is that the church op has the opportunity to be the counterculture to that, engaging with it, not being dismissive and harking back to yesteryear, but equally helping to shape, because these things have increased power when you shape them together in, in a community saying, well, let's start thinking together about how we help one another navigate this. So, for example, at my church, Inspire London, we're starting to talk more about um, you know, the time well spent movement, which is actually a movement that's come out of Silicon Valley, which is about you know, liberating yourself from the addiction to your devices. Yes. So we're starting a conversation so about that. So it becomes more of a tool rather than, to, well, not a tool, you shouldn't use the word tool, but, but more, more than that, 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 that is my slave rather than me being Yeah, I don't want my device it. to be shaping me or framing my view of the world. I want God's word and scriptures to be shaping and framing my view of the world. So therefore, I'm going to take proactive steps to make sure that's the case. And it's a really important step to really to label because you say in the book, the network that brings so much good with it cannot bear the weight the world is looking to assign to it. The world is looking for a light in the darkness and looking to the internet to provide it. And if you like, this, the internet is, 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 is making lots of promises which are completely unfounded and have quite sort of serious consequences. Yeah, and it's interesting, isn't it, you know, from a theological perspective, how much the language of the network and social media is picking up on biblical imagery 
and of course that's you know, in a yeah, way that's some like ex- some examples yeah um so the the uh, when facebook reached one billion users it um released an advert um about chairs and it was called the things that connect us mm-hmm. and it was saying that facebook is like chairs because chairs can facilitate social engagement they're a social infrastructure it didn't use the phrase social infrastructure right. but it was the story behind it and so facebook is like a chair it facilitates meaningful relationships and at the end of the video there, there were lots of you know kind of spin-off internet memes and i'm mocking the advert but it was a very successful advert mm-hmm. and at the end of the video it kind of panned out to see the world and it panned out to space until there was just pure darkness and then in the dark you know a kind of light came into the darkness and right. what was it it was Facebook. it was Facebook and the idea was Facebook is bringing light into a dark yes. universe well that's idolatry because the scriptures yes. clearly say there is only one person who brings light into a formless universe it's God he yeah. God is light and in yeah. him is there is no darkness so Facebook consciously or unconsciously is in that advert is taking the place of God Yes. And that, of course, and when you find teenagers addicted and and making Facebook their idol, then you realise there is idolatry going on there. So, and fascinating in, in a world that claims to be secular and to have no space for God. That, right. Well, yeah. this is and this is the thing. John Calvin would say that we are made to worship, and if we don't worship God, we'll worship something else. And so, worshiping our, you know, worshiping our status updates or worshiping the reputation on Facebook is key. So I'm I, I just thinking we sort of round up on this whole issue about relationships. I think it would be helpful to think about in terms of how social networks are good, but they don't hold the ultimate answers in terms of friendships. And because I think we begin to treat human beings like we treat our devices, as things that are disposable that I can, if you like, I, can, I, just, I just unfriend somebody on, uh, on, on my device, or I, um, and, I, and then I dis- disconnect with somebody because I, I, I don't like their views, or I, I, don't, I, I don't like them for some reason. You've got an interesting example, of, I, think, I think it was from, from your church or from Ed's church, about unfriending somebody yeah so conversation one of the problems is you know what in order to develop a meaningful relationship and a deep relationship with someone the relationship's going to have to go through periods of growth in the same way that actually um you know the way that you grow in strength in the human body is actually by as you train your body undergoes stress and that is and you know experiences some kind of form of controlled and careful damage and then the body rebuilds and it becomes stronger well so anyone who knows anything about relationships know that actually it's the moments of difficulty and tension that we work through together that bring strength and depth and Mm -hmm. resilience and trust and faith to a relationship so if the moment I get into a problem with anyone in a relationship, I unfriend them and walk away, the relationships are all wafer thin and really, really weak um, and very tenuous. And so they're not really any deep and meaningful friendships. You know, the, the point is the way that my wife and I have grown in our relationship is working through the difficult times, That's not right. by running away. But if we have a generation that is growing up thinking that the moment you get into difficulties, you run away. And as a church pastor, I experience this a lot that it's rare for us that someone decides that they're going to leave the church because of maybe something we've said or done or a misunderstanding, that they come to us, uh, to any of the staff members, and actually say and work out their problems face to face. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 says, if you have a problem with your brother or sister in Christ, go and speak to them face to face. That is so rare nowadays that yeah. someone actually has a grace-filled conversation where they say, Pete, you upset me when you said this or did this or I maybe misunderstood it but this happened and can we talk about it and then if you say legitimately you say look I'm really sorry you asked for forgiveness and the relationship is restored and by going through that process the relationship is strengthened not weakened but if the moment someone offends me I say well I'm going to unfriend them and of course when you unfriend someone on Facebook the person doesn't even know until yeah. at some random point they might check them and think oh I haven't seen so and so's status update for a while and they look and they think oh 
they've unfriended me. And you don't know why they've unfriended they you. Yes. And, and, and of course, that is now shaping how people do relationships. Yes. They do relationships like that with a, with a sub, you know, a kind of a, an under the water line, unfriending, and they move away. So we're losing the skill of, of as it were, of, of, how in, of how do we disagree in a, in a positive way, in a constructive way. Because obviously, you, in any relationship, the other per- if you're in a real relationship with somebody, they will say and do things that surprise you. I mean, right. we're, we're both married, and we know that right. our, our, our wives can do and say things that, that surprise, and that's part of the, of the wonder. That's joy and, and thrill in that. And, and beauty of the relationship. Um, but again, technology, if, if we're only communicating through social media, then we, then we lose that. We, we, we're losing that skill and ability. Yeah, and actually coming back to the enframement picture, technology is framing relationships in a new way that that is what it means to be a friend to someone, is to have unequivocal acceptance of all of your views and no points of tension. Well, that's not friendship. Yeah. I mean, that's superficial, sure. you know, kind of preference orientation. Not only that, but within social media as well, social media is organised according to taste communities where I immediately have pushed up my social media feed those people and views that agree with me. Now this is why the political discourse has become so fragmented across the Western world in the last five or ten years, whether it's Brexit, whether it's Trump, or whether it's Macron in France. The reason it's become so febrile and so full of tension is because the art of civic discourse, talking to people who would vote differently to me or have a different opinion to me, has completely gone. Because there are two big moves within social media, at least two, two to highlight. One is that it means that we've got particular, there's always been echo chambers, but the echo chambers are now um, so much more readily accessible and much, we're much so less conscious just, just about say, the fact. Saying, and saying the same things and believing the same things that exactly. I believe. So all of my opinions are just reinforced to me on social yeah. media. Now, I used to be able to go to an echo chamber, for example, if I was in the Labour Party, I would go along to the Labour Party club and there would be an echo chamber of Labour Party views. But I knew that I was going there or I would be able to buy the newspaper and know that it's got a left or a right leaning inclination. I know that I'm going to mostly have that. But it was a bit more conscious, a bit more flagged up now. If I'm on my Facebook, it's nothing that says you are in a left-wing echo chamber no. here. And you don't know. And so therefore, public discourse is gone. But the other thing is that the sensational gets shared more on social media. So a, right. a more provocative, sensational headline always gets pushed up and gets shared a lot it more. It grabs attention. And, and, yeah. So therefore, you've got a more polarized discourse, and you've got a discourse that's also just reinforcing people's own yes. blind spots. And so we're lacking the ability to have proper civic engagement. So we're going to get a whole generation where you're getting... Charlottesville is not a surprise, because okay. you're going to have two views which are polarizing one another, caricaturing one another, so of course it will be a 10 to the extremes. And just to bring together this issue about identity relationships together, if, if my identity is, if you disagree with me and my identity is based in, in, in what I think too much or what I believe is right or wrong, then the, the, that, then the danger then becomes that I then say, well, you're attacking me personally rather than saying, well, look, here's a concept, here's an idea, let's work together to see what is the truth and what, what is right and wrong here. Yeah, and also it's also in the identity that I assign to the other as well. So part of the way that it works is if I see every human being as made in the image of God, then they have an inherent dignity and value to them, which means I respect and love them and care for them, even if I disagree with them. And yes. part of that gives to really important Christian virtues such as humility and compassion, um, and you know, which work out in practices like really listening well. So you and I might disagree on something, Sunil, but we will, if I really believe that you're made in the image of God, I would give you the time of day to really listen to you and understand where you're coming from. And that shapes a civic discourse. The other hand, if I don't think that you're made in the image of God, if I think that you're defined, I don't know, because you're a left-wing voter and I'm a more right-wing voter, well, then I'll caricature you and 
you know, play you out as being a particular, um, a particular type of person. I won't want to hear your views because I know your views anyway, and that's all that you are. And that's what we're seeing again. You know, so we shouldn't be surprised by these trends. I think the problem is, is that we're not being proactive in trying to do something about it. Yes, enough. and just on that, I mean, we've got we, we've got a podcast, uh, podcast number twenty five. Is there a difficult person in your life? Where we try and tease out those differences in terms of how to have a conflict with someone without it, in a sense, being an attack on the person, mm. but trying to, as it were, side by side, look at what the issue is and work and work on that. Yeah, and it's worth asking the question like, what are the what are the feeds in your life? You know, whether that's a metaphor or reality. So again, what are your what are your media feeds? Uh, you can define these on your phone, right? You can go to your news center and you can define what your media feeds are. Well, a thoughtful person will not just have one media feed, you know, from one particular political or social orientation, but will have a range that therefore are giving different perspectives on that. The ultimate answer to fake news is not that you just go to one real news website, no matter what Donald Trump no. says, that's naive. The ultimate answer to fake news is to get is to get a number of different sources and to evaluate them. And that's always been the way that it's, yes. you know, that the public discourse is weigh, weigh them and, up. And it's, as it were, and think for yourself about it. Correct. It? But yeah. if we only have one one feed and we only have those that reinforce our opinions, of course, then we are going to be shaped by fake news. Great. Thank you, uh, Pete. It's, we, we've looked at areas of identity and relationships when it comes to technology. Any final comments you want to make or any thoughts that we want to say? Well, I just think that, you know, part of, um, you know, the key thing here is to, is that once we get a robust sense of identity made in the image of God, redeemed by Jesus Christ, and therefore he defines our identity because he gives us the ultimate security we're looking for, but also he also gives us liberty within that to be able to um, innovate and create and engage in his creation, but from a sense of the identity is given to us by God. And that then enables us to be better at interacting with others because I'm secure in myself, so I can therefore encounter people of different That's views, right. and I recognize the otherness in them value them for who they are made in the image of God and want to listen to them. So I think Christians have rich resources here that we need to draw on and just be careful in how we apply them to technology. But we do need to get roots back in the reformed gospel of um, people like John Calvin as a way to function well in our technological age. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Who would have thought that Descartes and John Calvin from 500 years ago would have so much to say about technology and how we can, as it were, navigate through a very complex and challenging world, particularly in the areas of identity and relationship. Thank you very much for your time, Pete. And just to say that there'll be some show notes that will go with this podcast. And again, it's virtuallyhuman.co.uk and the book is Virtually Human by Pete Nicholas and Ed Brooks. And there'll be a link to that on, on the website. Thank you. If you've enjoyed today's conversation, you can get all the show notes for this episode from drsunil.com. And could you do us a favour? Head over to iTunes to rate the programme. This is by far the best way to get this content into the hands of those who need it most. Also, do you think about who you could pass details of the podcast on to? Don't forget to check out the blog for more great content. That's drsunil.com, helping you to make sense of life in a challenging and complex world. Until next time, goodbye for now.